We ask you to keep in prayer, Brother Eric Janka from Richmond Hill. Brother Eric. Just wanted to thank everyone for the prayers, some text messages as well. And um, I just asked everyone to help me just to turn in prayer as well this evening to God. Father, Lord God, we just want to thank you for allowing us to come together again. Lord God, thank you for giving us an opportunity to worship you corporately, Lord God, as a body of believers. And we just pray for a blessing on this evening. Pray, Lord God, that you would have less of me and more of you in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 will begin on verse 14 up to verse 21. Isaiah 57, verse 14. And shall say, Cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also that is of contrite, or one of sincere remorse, and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be wroth. For the spirit should fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and was wroth, and went on frowardly, which means habitually disobedient in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts upon him. And to his mourners, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked, those with evil thoughts and deeds, are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Honestly, when I heard of the theme of revival, and it's actually Brother Mikey mentioned to me on one Sunday that I was going to be preaching, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, no, no, you're preaching. And I said, no, uh, no, I'm not. And... Then I got an email a couple days later of the schedule um, for this Tuesday. And it was, it was really interesting because our church actually went through a whole series on revival. It was right in the middle of COVID. And a lot of the material really led me to this passage because often even before that series we went through as a church, revival to me was often some grand event, some big-scale event that encompass thousands of people, a grand revival. You know, I often think of Acts chapter 2. You know, if you read through chapter 2, read verses 2 to 4, it speaks of rush, rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire, 3,000 souls being added. That's where I think of revival. Or if you're reading Joel, Joel chapter 2, it's the final deliverance of Jerusalem. And there it talks about God pouring out His Spirit, sons and daughters prophesying, having dreams and visions, a darkened sun, a bloody moon, and experiencing true deliverance. That to me is revival. 
And although corporate revival has its place, had its place of history, will have its place as well, this personal revival that is spoken of in Isaiah 57 is really more of a, a humble, personal revival. And it's led by a holy God. And it's really a cry of his children, the Israelites, to their father. It's really a set of children looking for communion back with their father. And it's often a place that those of us that are believers may have experience with God. Maybe we don't feel that closeness anymore with the Father. And I thought of, and my heart went to Psalms 139. Psalms 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And as we're searching, as we're purging, as we're seeking out revival, those wicked ways will come to the surface. And as we're on that road to the everlasting, you know, when we have, as mentioned last night, potentially fallen asleep, and we're asking God to search out our hearts, sometimes something more severe than repentance is required. And with Lord's help, I want to cover that concept of a personal revival, an intimate revival that is covered in verse 14. And through this verse, I'm hoping with the Lord's help, we'll see who is really the ultimate source of revival and how we as believers can receive revival. So read one more time verse 14, sorry, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, the source of our revival, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. That's really how we can receive revival, through a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And when you, look at, when you look at revival in this passage, in this specific verse, it's really a call for us to look up. Look up to the high and holy one. But in order to do that, in order to be able to look up, we have to be humbled. We have to have that contrite heart that allows us to be able to be revived. And really then, when we're able to humble ourselves and fall at our knees to the Father, that's when really true revival can only exist. And it's really a way of restoring our lives back to God. And the Israelites, throughout the Old Testament, found ways to distance themselves from God. And God was always willing to bring them back to him. And the father always was seeking out his stray and lost children. And when you think of who God is and the source of revival, and really there is only one source of revival, We may have emotions of maybe feeling that we're getting closer to God, that we're doing something that brings us closer to God. But if he isn't that source, if he isn't that power behind the revival, it's a false revival. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And it's only when we're able to, again, submit ourselves 
to be able to look up to God as a great physician who can heal and can revive us, we're helpless. Psalms 121, verses 1 to 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills, for where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And really, it's an awe and reverence when you think of the magnitude, far-reaching love of this holy God, a God that is from everlasting to everlasting. The Alpha and the Omega looks on us as his children and calls us back. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Isaiah 6.3 And one cried unto another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you read those passages, and you read in Revelations, and, and you hear of and you think of the holiness of God. Personally, as a, as a child, even as a teenager, and even as a young believer, that was fearful to me. How great God was, how holy God was, was fearful. I was scared of God. I often viewed it as a set of high standards, a set of religious checklists that I had to go through in order to be righteous before this holy God. And there was times of dreadful attempts of following that checklist, of doing the things that I knew I had to do, but I fell short because of how holy he was. But as you grow in your faith and you experience that relationship of a father to a child, that holiness becomes comforting. That holiness becomes a way of life. And something that I dreaded and feared became something that I loved. Second Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15-16 But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. See, the holiness of God is great, and it is in heaven, and it is the everlasting. But it's also called to be in us, his children. It's also called to become living holiness. Not something you just read in scriptures, not something you check off, not something you do in your prayers at night. It's called to be displayed for the world. And as you experience that holiness, it really becomes a freedom from this earth. Those chains that this earth has and the saint puts on us, once you experience the holiness of God, there's freedom in it. And when you think of the next part of that verse, verse 15, and how we can receive that revival from a holy God. Second half of verse 15, I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. 
And that term contrite, it's not very common anymore. Um, but it really does mean just sincere remorse. Someone that is totally and completely broken down. And often when we have testimony nights uh, and see new converts and see that brokenness, we expect that to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Now that we're believers, we're on the path. We're going to glory. But there are times when we're required to be broken down the same way. When we're required to have that contrite spirit that it speaks of in here. And until we can humble ourselves and know that we're in that state of sleeping, that we know we're in that state of separation from God, revival cannot occur. Psalm 34, 17 to 18. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Second Corinthians seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sins, and will heal the land. And even in the New Testament, First Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. And really, true humility, just like true holiness, only exists in God. And it's only through God's leading and the Holy Spirit's convicting that we can feel an extension of God's grace through humbleness. And in the same way as you take on holiness, if you're able to also embrace and not just understand, but live out humility as a believer, it becomes a mindset. It becomes a part of you. Humility isn't just something where you you view someone as being quiet and submissive. It's not all of that. And really, it's more about that fruit, that humility that God has given you really becomes your personality. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quote a few quotes. My brother Louis said this afternoon in one of his forums, he liked quotes. I love quotes. I do that at my church once in a while. And I'm going to quote a few tonight. Um, This one's from C.S. Lewis. And it says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less often. And often as believers, we think we have to think less of ourselves. That makes us more humble. It's just thinking of yourself less often. It's thinking of the person beside you, thinking of your stumbling brother, thinking of your sisters, thinking of your, of your wife that needs help, your children, whoever it is. It's not degrading yourself. It's uplifting those around you. That's what humility is all about. And the Bible is packed with examples of humility. And one of my favorite childhood Sunday school stories is David. You know, just not because of the, there's all the action, all the heroism occurring in that story. But there's so much humility in that story. From the start, when they come looking for a king, who's going to be the king? Who's going to replace Saul? They go through all the older brothers. Who's left over? Little David is out in the field. That's their leader, a humble leader. And when David goes 
to look for his weapon, five stones. That's all you have. And then when David goes before the king to meet Saul, and Saul's, okay, you're going to go to battle. Let me at least give you some weapons. Let me give you some real armor. He's mocked. It doesn't fit him. It doesn't work. He's not equipped to go fight this battle. And then when he gets out to the battlefield, Goliath mocks at him. He laughs at him. Who is this you bring before me? And then Christ, the ultimate example of humility, he humbled himself unto death, even to death unto the cross, Philippians 2, 7. He humbled himself lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, 9. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble, Matthew eleven twenty nine. If humility isn't prevalent in our lives, and we're attempting to grow closer to God and grow as a believer, it's going to fail. And there's a list of characteristics that I was able to pull together. Just Some of them you may connect with when you think of humility. Some of it you may not. But at least my prayer is that when you think of some of these terms, some of these characteristics of humility, there'll be something that you could strive for. And to be that example that Christ left us, to take on Christ in our lives. When we think of humility, often someone is teachable, willing to put scripture above all else. When we think of humility, that individual often has peace within themselves. They place the needs of others ahead of their own. They're grateful for the blessings they have received in life rather than looking for entitlement to what they don't have in life. They're slow to offend and quick to forgive. They're willing to ask for help and learn to grow spiritually in the Lord. They treat others with respect and serve others regardless of their status. They patiently wait for the Lord's assurance rather than looking for insurance in man. They recognize their own limitations, their weaknesses, and their strengths. They put their faith, love, joy, and trust in God rather than mankind. They have a deep, intimate relationship with God founded on Scripture. And then when you want to think of the opposite of humility, when you want to look through the second part of this passage, and it speaks of the wicked, and it speaks of the froth, it says there is no peace. They will not have peace if you're wicked. And there's a term, when you think of the opposite of humility, something that's deeply rooted in most wicked people, a term that entered the scene before mankind, a term that can set discourse and peace in even the most faithful believer, a term that has become a stumbling block for many throughout the scriptures and even in today's time. This is another quote. The vice... I am talking of is pride or self-conceit and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became 
the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That was another quote from C.S. Lewis. The book is Mirror Christianity. It's hard to follow, but it's a really good, there's a great section on pride in that book. And the reason I think of that quote is because that term is so scary. When you think of anti-God state of mind. You, you can't think of a believer being in an anti-God state of mind. How is that feasible? But pride creeps into not only the devil crept into, you think of the first born, the first creation, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Pride was right there. They had the attempt to be God-like. They wanted to be like God. Throughout the Old Testament, great men and women fell to pride. King David, who we just talked about humility and how much humility he had, a man after God's own heart, was ripped apart by pride. Proverbs 6, 18, 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Psalm 10, 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. It really is scary and intimidating to think of how destructive pride can be. It can lead the godliest men astray. It can destroy lives, families, churches. And it didn't stop in the Old Testament. Pride continued, carried its way through the New Testament. The Pharisees demanded dignity, superiority, full of pride. Okay, the Pharisees kind of, this may be understandable. But his disciples... The ones who are walking with Christ, they gave up everything, gave up their families, gave up their careers, gave up their profession. They were with Christ every day. Who will be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's going to get the right side? Who's going to get the left side? I want it. As soon as we attempt to elevate ourselves, we're going to fall. And God and Jesus throughout the Bible provide warnings of pride. James 4, 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 23, verse 12. And whosoever shall exalt himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's an uphill battle. If you want to try to resist God, he's going to force humility on you. Apostle Paul, on Monday, he fought against God. And he was warned, why are you kicking against these pricks, blinded for three days? And pride doesn't have to be that great, grand scheme. It comes in all little shapes and sizes. It doesn't start off destroying a church. It doesn't start off destroying a family. It has no respect of age, no respect of gender, but it will destroy. <laughs> Some characteristics of pride. It's often blinding. Don't even know you have it. Don't even know what it's doing in your life. You're blinded to the pride. Often unthankful. Seeking out more of the best in your life. Often manifested through anger, pouting, moody, or impatientness. Many are often perfectionists. 
often at the expense of others. Maybe it's a desire for independence, not working well with others. Maybe you're someone who monopolizes conversations, headstrong, rigid, stubborn. Or maybe you're consumed with what others think of you. You're concerned of the criticism you receive, possibly unteachable, resist authority. The one that often I struggle with, sarcastic. Sarcasm often leads to stem from pride, hurtful, defensive. But you don't wake up every morning and say, I'm going to be a stubborn, headstrong, and angry person today. Just like yesterday, you don't wake up saying, I'm asleep. What do I do? It doesn't happen that way. Satan slowly lures us away. And to give you a little personal experience of pride in my life, you know, I always say I appreciate, even to coworkers and people on my team and to my wife and to people at church, I appreciate your feedback. Preparing a meal, preparing a sermon, delivering a sermon, serving a meal. I would like your feedback. But when does that feedback become affirmation? become feeding an ego, become pride. It's hard to discern, but Satan always finds that way to just put a subtle thought in your mind. And as mentioned before, throughout this week, it's, it's subtle. It's so small, so minor. And a few weekends ago, we had the opportunity to have a, a youth rally in Kitchener, and I was able to teach the 12 to 16-year-olds. And a similar concept, the lesson was on being a slave to Satan. And those 12 to 16-year-olds, the same way, they don't wake up every morning saying, I'm going to go serve Satan today. I have my handcuffs on. I'm ready to go. Do battle for Satan. As believers, we're the same way. We don't wake up saying, I want to be prideful today. I want to go do some destruction. And there's a song I shared with the class. It's old, already 13 years old. But I want to share a few lines from that song. It's called Slow Fade by Casting Crown. I love music, and um, I often connect with music because, to me, it's just my alone time, my time in the car, my car ride, and I'll play music and pray and, and grow closer to God through it. And the song, to me, was something that really brought to home, especially for that lesson um, of being a slave to Satan and a similar concept of being a slave to pride. And the words are, it's a slow fade, when you give yourself away, it's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. And regardless of what shade of gray you want to call pride, it's toxic. And you will never have peace, as it mentions in verse 21, with pride in your life. It causes division between you and God. He can't exist in pride. It causes division within your family. Your family can't exist and can't strive and can't grow with pride in your life as a father, as a leader of your household. It slowly corrodes, slowly degrades, and then eventually destroys. And as Satan lures us away through pride, it becomes part of us as well. The same way we attempt to put on humility, he's trying to put on pride. Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an action, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. 
sow a character, and you reap a destiny. That was another quote from 1800s Ralph Waldo Emerson. And when you think of those stages in life, of pride coming in, of humility attempting to be put on, when your thoughts turn to actions, when your actions turn to habits, when your habits turn to character, when your character becomes your destiny, it doesn't have to be in evil things this way. You can take those thoughts, you can take those actions, you can take those habits and those characters and turn them towards humility. You can turn them towards the fruit of the Spirit. And eventually, those thoughts of humility, seeking out Christ in the Scriptures, seeking out ways to be humble, become actions in a life that you're living through humility. Eventually, those actions become a habit. And humility just flows naturally. And then after that character, and we put on the character of Christ. And it isn't just actions. It isn't just habits. It becomes a character of us, ultimately leading us to our eternal destiny. Proverbs eleven two, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And to think of humility equating to wisdom, it's counterintuitive to our society. You gain wisdom by going and doing and growing and advancing yourself and, and taking on things and challenging yourself. That's how you're going to gain wisdom on this earth. God's the opposite. Give up yourself. Become a slave for me. And that's where you're going to grow in wisdom. That concept was mentioned on Monday, was mentioned yesterday, and I'm going to do it for the third time. It's that concept of putting off pride and putting on humility. It's a concept of taking and recognizing that pride and putting it away, putting it off, learning of God's humility and putting it on. It's repenting from that pride that exists in your life, living out humility, and it's revealing more pride and finding ways to exercise godly humility. The last quote for the evening. A proud man is always looking down, always looking down on things and people. And of course, as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. C.S. Lewis. And as we're in my prayer tonight that we'd be able to look up to high and holy God, that we'd be able to put away pride, put on humility, and experience a deep, personal, and intimate revival. Amen. He has shown thee, he has shown thee, oh man, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Come with my God, but to do 
Just me.